I want to tell you about Anchor because it's what I use to record these podcasts. Why do I use it? Number one, it's free. Number two, it's simple. I don't have a lot of tech skills, but I don't need to because Anchor does a lot of the work for you. And as you know, many of you who know, I'm a career woman. I do this as a hobby on the side in my free time, and I love my kids and my family, and I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. (laughs) So thank you, Anchor, for that. It's the creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And so they also distribute it for you anywhere you hear podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the different ones. You can make money from it if you choose to with no minimum listenership. And it's got everything you need to make the podcast in one place. So I would encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the A World of Difference podcast. This is episode four. My guest today on episode four of Helping in Hard Times is my father, Dr. Ron Adams. He is currently retired, but still working. This is a theme apparently with my parents. <laughs> he is um, currently a hospice chaplain in all the new southern New Mexico region. He's, um, he's a bilingual hospice chaplain, so he works with people who are Spanish speakers, English speakers, and helps them make that transition from this life to the next, which during COVID is just really important and special calling. Um, he's been a part of four church starts, both in the United States and in Venezuela. He um, was served as a missionary with International Mission Board for 23 years, or 20 years, and then for the last three years worked with OMF um, in Thailand. He has been a senior pastor of uh, several churches in Kentucky. He has been a prison chaplain, and he'll definitely talk about that. <clears throat> He's actually been a volunteer military chaplain at, at points. He has His work took him into over 30 countries, and um, he worked for a while with the Spanish Baptist Publishing House, which is um, where he did a lot of traveling in Latin America, just got to see a lot of really cool things. He's been a team leader with IMB for the Valencia professional team in Venezuela. When he worked in Thailand, he was the CEO of a global leadership development consultants, which was an interagency organization that had a partnership to, um, with these different Christian agencies to work in seven South Asian nations. Um, he, for two and a half years, when he was with OMF in North Thailand, he was the Mekong regional project manager and business consultant for them. He, uh, you know, during his years as a chaplain for the prison, he just saw incredible things happen. He, he was coming into a situation at this prison in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which had had just a lot of trauma, a lot of violent, um, situations going on there. And, for the previous 20 years, they had had no baptisms. Um, so it was just kind of a very uh, a, a dark and difficult situation. But he, he went in just bravely. And, you know, during the four years the, he was there, the last year he was able to have conversations with inmates that, um, you know, led to their decisions to follow Jesus. And he baptized 42 inmates that last year, but actually over 100 baptisms that he did in the prison during his tenure there. And one of the people he baptized was actually a gang leader, a former satanic priest who went on to be a Bible study leader in his unit and led others to to know Jesus. Um, Yeah, he's been a part of some incredible things. He 
he is a teacher. He taught um, some seminary classes, some Bible colleges, both in the States and in Venezuela. He, um, and after they left Thailand and he started working in New Mexico, he worked at Sierra Vista Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. He worked for a about three years. He worked as the executive pastor and a teaching pastor. He also worked with Celebrate Recovery as a pastoral counselor and a life groups coach there. He, um, when he was in North Thailand, um, he also was able to be a spiritual life counselor at the Well Counseling Center in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And that counseling center is really, it's just meant a lot to a lot of people that I know that have gotten, you know, some good counseling there. It's a great place. He, um, he's a doctor of ministry from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's just a great thinker and leader with a lot of wisdom. So I really just am so glad that you're here today. Just take a deep breath and just listen and take some notes. You're going to gain some wisdom on um, how somebody who grew up in hard times, in a hard situation, in a family that where he was not fed spiritually, that somehow, some way, a life like that can be turned into one that is deeply spiritual, grounded in his faith, pouring his life out for others, and in his 70s is still going strong. So listen in. You're really going to love this episode. A little disclaimer on this episode. I've never claimed to be a tech genius by any stretch of the imagination. The recording, for some reason, my voice is a little bit like a couple seconds earlier than it was in real time. So it just sounds like basically that I know what he's going to say before he even says it. <laughs> so anyway, hang in there. It's a great episode. Hey, Dad, thanks for joining the show today. How's it going in New Mexico? Uh, believe it or not, we're going to have some more 100 oh, degree yeah. weather. <laughs> But I appreciate the opportunity to talk yeah, to you, too. baby girl. Well, with all my guests in this um, series that we're doing, I'm just wanting people to have the opportunity to, to tell a little bit about who they are, who they were growing up, um, because it sort of informs who we become as adults in a lot of ways. And so I just wanted to give you the chance to share your life story, which I'm sure I won't have to twist your arm about because you love telling your life stories. <laughs> but yeah, what was it like to grow up as Ron Adams? Oh, that's a long question, and uh, it took me years of therapy to discover some of that, and I'm still in therapy to trying to discover the rest of that. Um, let me say I'm the oldest of four boys. Uh, there was a girl born before me, my only sister. She, she died in childbirth. Um, my youngest brother died when I was 15 years old. I didn't know that for a number of years, that he died on and the day he was born, uh, the day after my birthday, my mother ended up, uh, I guess, boring or but having six children. Uh, she and my dad were married for about 60 years. They both have passed on and gone to their heavenly reward. I guess you could say um, in beginning, I was a poor farm boy from Kentucky. I was the first one in my family to go to college. Um, I think uh, I can say that education and getting into ministry and particularly missionary uh, activity and work allowed me to escape poverty and to develop an, an expanding worldview, which is still expanding here in New Mexico. I am not the same person that I was when I grew up on that farm years ago. 
uh, on our farm, we had crops and cattle, and I learned to chop wood uh, around eight or nine years old. Uh, we burned wood in the wintertime out of necessity, not out of luxury. Uh, we killed or butchered most of our meat, chickens, pork, uh, beef cattle. Uh, I learned to hunt and trap and fish at a very early age. Uh, to provide extra meat sources, which are I've eaten about everything that has four legs or flies. Uh, I became a really good shot with a shotgun and a rifle. I always have a hard time two. imagining that because, uh, like, you tell me that part of the story, and yet, like, knowing you my whole life as my dad, like, I just can't. It sounds more like Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games than Ron Adams to me. <laughs> well, uh, I know how to do all of that and probably could do it again. Uh, if I used to. My granddad taught me how to plow a mule when I was nine years old. That was his way of farming until I got old enough to drive the family tractor. And my dad wouldn't let me drive it till I got driver's license, legal driver's license. <laughs> uh, my, my best guess effort is that for about 10 years, everything that the vegetables and all kinds of things that went on our family dinner table, I put there uh, by working hard in the fields. I got my first paid job when I was 14, uh, I guess you would say starting freshman year in high school. Uh, I earned $10 for a 10-hour job on a Saturday working all day at a grocery store. Was that before uh, labor laws? And I, I that was before now. minimum wage, or was that the minimum wage? <laughs> uh, it was right after wow. minimum wage. <laughs> uh, it became a dollar and 25 cents an hour after I got out wow. of high school. So my family was uh, quite dysfunctional. Uh, I know that now. I did not know that then. I thought we were all normal. I thought normal was living in chaos. <laughs> uh, there were all kinds of abuses for, in my life growing up. Uh, some of that was physical, emotional, mental, religious, spiritual, and sexual. Home life was often violent, and there were a lot of what was I was told were uh, whippings, which became really beatings, and there was fighting and cursing and shouting and screaming and all kinds of trauma events of which I was treated for later through PTSD from that abuse. Um, I don't ever remember going to church as a child. Uh, I started going to church somewhere around 12 years old when I learned to drive the family farm truck on the farm out of necessity because cows had to be fed in the wintertime with hay and ponds had to be cut with ice for, with an axe so that the cows wouldn't get in the pond and drown. I had to do all that when I came home from school because dad was not at home uh, during six days a week. Every Sunday uh, when I learned to drive, I put my brothers in the car and drove down our gravel road about a mile to Highway 62, and we walked a couple of hundred yards to the local church. And then we would go home from church and have to work on Sunday because that was Dad's day at home. My friends in those early years became, uh, well, were, they didn't become, they were the local pastor's sons. He had three boys, uh, one one of those, the middle boy, was my age. There was an older boy and then a younger boy. And we became good friends for several years while he was pastor of the church. 
and we rode our horses together on neighbors' farms. I'm not sure the year or the day, but I do know the place where I gave my life to Jesus. And I know that it's been about 60 years ago, and I can close my eyes to this very day and see that place and feel that tremendous peace that I had that day when I said to Jesus, yes, I want you in my life. I know I'm a sinner. I confess my sins to him and believe that he knew that he was the son of God, that he had lived a sinless life, that he died and was buried and rose from the grave. And after asking him to come into my life, that experience changed my life on earth and secured my eternal destiny. That's something like it was when I grew up. Yeah, it's just uh, so much of it sounds like in some ways such a bygone era. I mean, when we hear about it today, um, I mean, I'm in a very urban environment. I don't I mean, it's like, where does our food come from? Who even knows at this point? Right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and yet you grew up like, you know, being such a part of it. Um, and it's, it was such a hard upbringing, not only just because farming can be hard, but because even as a child, you were so involved and, and of course all the abuse and, and all that just so much harder. And I just want to say to anybody who's listening, if you've experienced any sort of abuse that, um, you know, we have a God who sees you, who knows you, who loves you. And there are many resources out there to help you work through it. And, um, I'm sure as my dad tells his story, you'll see a life that has, um, work through that with therapy, but is also a life that is giving back to other people and that healing can take place. So um, the next part I wanted to ask you about was like, was there a point in time that you can remember where you just knew you wanted your life to make a difference? Well, uh, I think the first time that I really had someone who spoke into my life about making a difference uh, I was on uh, my school's basketball team, and my coach, uh, the night before we were in our final tournament game, uh, let all the other players go out and get on the court, and he kept me in the locker room. And he said to me, Ron, if you don't keep their star player from scoring, we will lose this game. And I says, Coach, you know, you've seen me guard this guy throughout the season. I keep him from scoring, and he fouls me, and I hit foul shots. And he said to me, this game depends on you. Mm. Uh, from that moment, I began to think, well, there might be something in me that can make a difference in somebody's life. Uh, long story short is I kept the guy from scoring a lot of points. He fouled out. I made foul shots through the game. And we won the Yay, tournament. It's like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not the only one who, who helped me make a difference. Um, I look back on some key people in my life that took me under wing. And you can consider them and say, we use the term mentor. And I was the mentee in that situation. Yeah. And, uh, I had two pastors that really, uh, a pastor's wife and two pastors that really helped me grow in my spiritual life those mm -hmm. years. And the, coming up <laughs> in a couple of days, the 19th day of this month, which is two days away, 
52 years ago on that day, I made a commitment to surrender and, and commit my life to ministry. 52 years ago, and it seems like I blinked my eyes and those 52 years mm -hmm. went away so quickly. Uh, but from that moment on, that pastor of which I went forward in the next service and said to the congregation, God is calling me to ministry. I really don't know what that means right yeah. now. It could, it could be pastoral ministry, which it was for 15 or 16 mm -hmm. years. But from that moment on, he began to share me and, and promote me and market me or whatever at the pastor's conferences and said, you need to use this young man. And so he was sort of key to help me understand that God chose me and could use me to make a difference in other people's lives. Wow. That's such a powerful story because, um, I mean, I obviously didn't know you back then, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I know you to be a man who really is a, one who mentors others and leads others and kind of has this, like, always on the lookout for leaders with potential that you want to invest in. And I think that's just a good reminder for us that one of the best ways we can make a difference in the world is when we spot those people who have a lot of potential and just pouring into them and then championing them like this man did for you. I mean, he truly was your champion by giving you a platform you would have otherwise not had to make a difference in people's lives. So that, that's really cool. That's um, well, I know that you did pastor for several years and that went for a while, as you mentioned. And then at one point you really felt um, led to go overseas and you did some trips in Guatemala for several years, helping with some earthquake relief. And then eventually, um, you know, moved to Costa Rica for a year and then on to Venezuela. So I'm curious to know maybe if you could walk us through those experiences of um, just moving overseas for the first time and being in a different culture and learning a different language and how you experience that. Okay, uh, sort of a quick background. Um, I'd been a senior pastor of three different churches in Kentucky uh, from 1970, January 70, the month I was ordained, and then till 1984. And I'd made about five trips to Guatemala and in February of 77 was that first trip. And on the plane returning from uh, that country for the first time, first time I'd ever flown outside the U.S., first time I ever had a passport. Uh, I guess I've had uh, how many every 10 years since then passports, uh, a lot yeah. of passports. <laughs> anyway, but on the plane, it seemed as if that I don't know how many folks were on that plane. I, I know it was a 727 uh, airplane, so 150 people or so, but it seemed as if God and me were the only two people on that plane, and there was a battle <laughs> going on for about three hours before we landed. <laughs> and, uh, I thought it was like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I guess, in a way. I came to a compromise with the Lord for a couple of years. And I kept telling him and making a promise to him, I would go back overseas at least once a year on a mission trip if he'd let me stay preaching uh, at a church. Well, that went on for about seven <laughs> years until I couldn't, decide, couldn't do that any longer. And then we packed up the family, Lori and Chris at that time, and we moved to San Jose, Costa Rica. <laughs> Going to Costa Rica was a really good, unique experience in so many ways. 
number one, we had left all of our friends and family. I guess the hardest part for me in learning the language was I'd just gotten out of seminary and had studied Greek and Hebrew my last term in seminary, and I didn't want to study another language <laughs> right. for a while. So we were forced <laughs> uh, to go to class four hours a day in the mornings and five days a week. And then we got to practice uh, in the afternoons with Ticos in the street. Ticos are some of the kindest, nicest, considerate, gentle people you'll ever meet anywhere. The closest to the Ticos are the Thai yeah, folks true. and That's the so Thai true. people. Very close, very close in temperament and in character. And uh, those, uh, that whole year we were studying in the language school and practicing every afternoon. Uh, we earned the equivalent of 60 college hours in a year. Uh, we, had, we took the same kind of test that many of our State Department personnel take. Uh, it was a fluency test. And if we passed that fluency test after a year, we could uh, graduate and go on to our field of service. My wife and I both passed that test, and we were able to go on in, to live in Venezuela and began to learn how to speak another kind of Spanish yeah. <laughs> language. Not having a car that year was uh, interesting uh, since I had been driving since 12 yeah. years old and not having right. a car. Uh, anymore to drive and a uh, car really came in handy especially if you're buying food uh, we walked everywhere <laughs> walked to school uh, we walked to the stores uh, if we had a little longer trip we could take a bus or a taxi and uh, one of the things that I remember very vividly was getting up on Saturday morning early and walking over to the city market where they had all kinds of fruit and vegetables and sometimes meat. And that particular Saturday, uh, my wife asked me to bring home a chicken. Uh, so this is a good chicken memory. <laughs> is that a category of so memories? <laughs> the, chickens, the chickens they sold were what I consider naked chickens. Uh, they didn't have feathers. They were head and feet and everything else, but no feathers. Naked chicken. And so I come home with my sack of stuff. I usually had to come home by bus because uh, it was too far to walk and carry something heavy as that sack. And so I put the chicken in the kitchen sink and went on about my business. And uh, it wasn't long before I heard this blood curdling scream out of the kitchen. And I thought someone had broken into our house. And it was my wife. And she had seen the chicken in the sink. And she was screaming. <laughs> and and she, so she told me, she said, you've got to cut up that chicken. I can't cut up a chicken that's looking at me. So <laughs> I had learned to do that years ago. And so I cut up the chicken. Yeah, just I guess the farming experience came in handy at that point. So some of the cultural skills got to cross over there, I guess. <laughs> Well, we yeah. did eventually move to Venezuela, and uh, I know that that, like, you know, 20 years-ish there was just an incredible experience for you, and I just would love for you to share some of your, your most treasured memories from our life in Venezuela. Venezuela, it would take us uh, days probably to do all the things that are so fond memories, and 
I do know this, that um, I have more than a thousand photographs and slides and movies of those treasured memories that Lori and Chris and Chad will probably fight over when we die. <laughs> or we'll just put them digitally um, and we'll all get them. <laughs> well, I tried to do some of that a couple of years ago when I thought I could retire. And I didn't get too far along the way before I started working. <laughs> you and Mom both. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So arriving in Venezuela uh, was a total cultural shock, more so than Costa Rica. Costa Rica was more like how I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> and so I could I could handle that pretty well, except with the beaches and the mountains. I didn't have any of that yeah. in Kentucky. So, uh, but getting into Venezuela that first night. And arriving uh, at the airport, I will never forget that memory. There were missionary friends that we've been corresponding with by snail mail back then. We didn't have yep. email, <laughs> nor internet, nor any of that. And I don't even know if we'd ever talked on a phone uh, with any of them. But we get there, and there they are when we come out of uh, immigration and get our luggage and come out to meet them and there they all are welcoming us to our new country and to our new family and they also showed us our new car which was a something very important because we'd not have a yeah. car in a year <laughs> and so they drove us up the mountain to the capital city uh, Caracas and I remember waking up the next morning and looking out the window and it looked like there was an ocean of high-rise buildings as far as I yeah. could see. I'd never yeah. seen that many high-rise buildings in my yeah. lifetime. I love Caracas. That was my one of my first impressions. And it wasn't long, uh, maybe a day or two later, that we met some of the national leaders of our, uh, our convention at the time. And they took us to lunch and began to help us um, understand how the work was in the country and those leaders uh, are still good friends to this day and that's been close to 30 yeah. years ago um, and so I guess one of the things that we learned in the adjustment adjusting to a new cult culture a new language new foods new everything is that family is more than blood yeah relatives. for sure Venezuela brothers and sisters to this day uh, are part of our family. And we have one in our family from Venezuela as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Daughter-in-law to you, sister-in-law yeah. to me. That's right. Well, as we, yes. as we move forward in the, um, in the ways that you were learning to make a difference and got opportunities when you were in Venezuela in particular, um, I wanted you to talk about just um, your experience and the really impactful moment of what happened with the mountains going toward Cata Beach flood and disaster that happened. So I'd love for you to share that story with us. Sunday, September 7th, 1987 is a date that's burned in my brain. Like Sunday, December 26, 2004 is for you with the tsunami. Yeah. Tropical depression off the northern coast of Venezuela that produced the equivalent of a month's rainfall in a day. Now, this was during rainy season, and we were accustomed to a lot of rain most days, but this was a whole month of rain. And 
that happened to fall on an area uh, in a mountain area outside of another large city called Maracay. And the, there was a mountain range between Maracay and the coast, or Cata Beach, Choroni, and Okumare. And it was a mountain road, very narrow, very uh, curvy, <laughs> uh, very treacherous, even when there was nothing right. else on it. And so here the rain comes and falls on that mountain, and the mountain just gave way. And so all the trees and the big boulders that were on the mountain came down the mountainside all the way in to miles and miles away. Uh, I'm guessing miles-wise, by the way the crow flies, probably 10 to 15, 15 miles away into the city of Maracay. But in that coming down the mountain, uh, the mud and debris fell on the road, the only road on the way in and out from Maracay to the yeah. beach or to the yeah. coast. The people who lived in that area were trapped and they couldn't get out. Uh, estimates are from 10 to 20,000 people were trapped with uh, little supplies and short supplies of food and water and other basic materials. But all the roads and many of the bridges were washed away by that flood. I saw trees large enough in, Mar in Maracay, in a little urbanization called El Limon. I couldn't reach my hands across them, around them. They were that large. And I saw boulders that were no, uh, and I'm not exaggerating when I say 10 to 12 feet across. Mm -hmm. They were that large. And they came into that city uh, and destroyed hundreds, at least three to 400 homes in that area of Maracay. Thousands of people were trapped on the road. Uh, thousands of people were injured. Dozens of buses were just uh, pushed off the mountain and off the roads uh, in the landslides. It took uh, almost a month for heavy equipment to go in and clear out the road. I saw hundreds and hundreds of cars. I think at one time uh, I read a report they were between three to 5,000 cars that they pulled out of the road during that month. Wow. In Elimon, uh, where I worked most of the, uh, for 30 to 40 days, and here's what I was doing. I was president of the Bible College in Valencia, where we lived an hour away, and I just took a leave of absence from the Bible college as president to go and work this disaster because I'd been trained yeah. to do this. I'd never had the experience to do it. I was just trained right. to do it. <laughs> Big difference. Yeah. And so through the whole area that in that disaster area, I could walk through miles and miles of houses and touch, stick out my arm level with my shoulder and touch every roof in that whole urbanization. There was six to eight feet of mud in most every home in that whole area. The disaster happened on a Sunday afternoon while people were taking a nap after church and after lunch. And as they heard the sound and looked out their window, they saw the mud and the trees and the boulders and the water coming down their streets. Many ran out of their home just the way they were. Some had pajamas, some had less. And they just ran out in the street to get away from all of that uh, flood that was coming.
I uh, was at command headquarters the next morning at early at, on Monday, on the 8th of September, and I met with every disaster relief person that had gathered there that day, including some of the leaders from our own convention and our own mission board. And I was watching all day long uh, as helicopters flew over the mountain to the soccer field near that command center. And they were unloading body bags one after another on the soccer field. They did that all day long. Body bag after body bag was placed in that soccer field side by side. And the first thing that reminded me was of what I saw and in, on the news report from the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. helicopters coming in with yeah. body bags. And I never will forget the sights, the sounds, the smells of the dead decaying bodies from under the ground where I'd walk day by day. There was a, a smell that I will never forget from decaying corpses that were never discovered and never unearthed. The Venezuela government, uh, because of their way of doing things, especially in public eye and in uh, reporting uh, actual <laughs> facts, the way they reported the number of dead was by the number of bodies they yeah. found. And so uh, there were estimates from what I heard from those who were actually digging out the bodies and uncovering the bodies and those who we saw come to the center and report missing bodies. The government reported 500 that died, but all of those uh, relief organizations and disaster uh, recovery operations, uh, some profit, some nonprofit, uh, we're reporting there were thousands and thousands missing and thousands and thousands of more that they were just sure that died from that disaster. What uh, we were able to do, uh, to give you an idea, is that I was uh, certified with a badge with letters and signs and uh, that I could put in my truck or vehicle and carry the letter that was officially signed from the civil defense in our city. And I was authorized as a chaplain to go in and work in the, in the disaster area that was protected by the Venezuelan armed forces. I never had a problem working with them or getting passage to go into the zone to work every day for those 30, 40 days where I was working. What was amazing is how the churches in the Maracay came together and other churches throughout this country came together in support. And we met and we decided that this is how we were going to help the victims and the families and those that survived. We set up a, a relief uh, site. And as families began to come to us, they could come in and go all through our, our center and receive uh, fresh clothing, uh, including underwear, new underwear, new socks, shoes, uh, a bag of groceries, of food, medicine, vaccinations that they needed, plus a mattress that they could take with them back to their home if they were still able to stay there. 
and they could do this in a family of five and be in and through the center in 30 wow. minutes. Uh, one of my good friends who was a retired army general came two to three times every week. He would call me or back then we didn't have cell phones, but he would call the center and say, I'm on my way. And he would bring us a truckload of clothes uh-huh. from the capital That's city. So nice. Yeah. And so I had women and men's and children's. And so churches all over the country began to respond this way. Church in Valencia did this. So because when people left their home from the flood, right. they had nothing except what they yep. had on their back. And like I said, some had pajamas, yep. some didn't. And so they, they were able to at least have two uh, changes of clothes and a, a bag of groceries. Our, our group was the only group in the disaster area that was serving hot meals. And the way we did this, we found a big oil drum that had a plastic liner in it, and we sanitized that. And we made uh, 50 gallons of soup and stew, or super stew-type meals for those in the disaster zone who were staying at their home because whatever they had left at their home, they didn't want somebody to come in and vandalize it or to to steal it. And so they were guarding what little they had left, even though they didn't have much. And, And so they wouldn't come to the center for help. They stayed. And so we'd take food to them and give them a bowl of super stew and fresh water. Um, what I would find is that uh, many of the other groups were giving box food or canned food, and there was no way to open the food yeah. or to cook it. Uh, some had learned to improvise by getting a, a, a tire or rim, wheel rim, turning it upside down where it had a depth to it, and putting in charcoal. And having something like a little grill on top where they could cook some food. Pretty cool. Yeah. One day I was in town uh, at a large supply store. And I went into the store. And I asked the manager how many camping stoves he had in stock. And to my surprise, he said 300. And I said, I want all of them. <laughs> he said, you want all of those camping stoves? And I said, I want all of them. He said, really? And I said, yes, really. <laughs> Uh, and I'm going to ask you for uh, a favor. He said, what's that? I said, this is for all of those who've been damaged and hurt and survived the, the disaster. And I want you to donate them. He looked at me kind of strange and he said, okay, to my surprise. So I took all of those stoves, 300 of them, and I gave it to 300 families so they could cook when they got their food. And it was just a wonderful experience to have all of that, uh, all of those churches cooperating together in one thing we could all cooperate together with, and that was meeting human needs in a disaster. We had coverage by the city press, uh, and they just couldn't believe that churches would do anything like this uh, because we were doing more than the actual government was doing at that time. You don't, you don't help in those kind of hard times without um, getting a little hurt yourself. I mean, not that it's ever at the same level as the people in the disaster you're helping, but 
we we get our hands dirty we get in there and we give our whole selves and that's that's what you did I mean you just um stepped in there and people needed warm meals and they needed clothes and um and they needed somebody to listen to what their actual needs were which is to be able to cook the, the food too and um and so when you get yeah. that involved and you're smelling death and you're um, you know, hearing and experiencing, you know, a small portion of a large amount of trauma that they go through. Um, it's just, it's the kind of servant leadership that, that we're called to, to do. And I just think you were there for such a special moment. And, and it is one of those things. It's, it's hard to relive those in your mind because they were hard times, but, you know, helping in those hard times or what helps us connect with humans going through those hard things too. And, um, and I just think it's such a great, moment that you were able to be there for that. And I know that you've had a lot of other moments. Um, I mean, you eventually, you spent many years in Venezuela and then you moved into North Thailand for a few years. And um, I know that culture, you mentioned that the Ticos and the Thais were very similar. Uh, Venezuelans are a little mm -hmm. more um, boisterous personality as a culture and Thais are a lot more kind of reserved. And so, yeah, what was that experience like for you when you were in North Thailand? Oh, goodness. Um, that that was a good experience all in all. There were some bad moments, but all in all, it was a it was a good spirit, a good experience. Um, I think the the biggest difficulty or challenge was the language. Yeah. Um, you may not know this, but I've studied eight languages, uh, some officially, some informally, some informally. But eight languages. I'd never studied a tonal yeah, language in my different. life. Yeah. And, and Thai yeah. is tonal. And uh, for me, uh, even then, uh, I was getting a little older, of course. And the Thai language has five tones, uh, high, mid, low. And then those I could understand, high, mid, and low. It was the ones in between that that I had difficult. Uh, your younger brother, Chad, uh, anytime I would drive up to a gas station, which they were all attended, you could not yeah. serve yourself. And you'd have to tell the attendant uh, the kind of gas you wanted, the octane level, how much you wanted. And uh, then you had to pay them. <laughs> and every time I would pull into a gas station, if Chad was in my car, he would say, Dad, you used the wrong tone. <laughs> Nothing like a kid to say. My <laughs> response was, and my response was, see if I get gas see if I get the right kind of gas and see if I get the right amount of gas. And I always did. <laughs> they gave you grace, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. But ties, ties are kind and gentle and courteous, polite. And it's referred to as the land of smiles because everybody smiles, whether they're having a good day or a bad day, they it's all so smile. True. <laughs> you know, the way people grow up and the way their culture forms who they are and getting to experience all these different cultures. I know you also traveled extensively in Central and South America. And, um, and then you, you know, lived in two countries in South America, and then you've lived in Thailand. And of course you came to visit me in Indonesia and in Singapore and things, but ultimately you ended up um, before you retired um, working in as a chaplain in the prison system in Las Cruces in New Mexico. And I know that in that role, you encountered inmates who had a lot of different religions and some of your experiences overseas kind of helped you already knowing, you know, people who practice those religions probably helped you going in to help understand where the inmates were coming from, from their perspectives and different things. 
But I just, yeah, I was wondering if you, because there's a lot of conversation right now in the United States about mass incarceration and, of course, you know, racism as, as that is involved in, in the prison system and, and all that's um, going on in our culture right now. So I just wondered, it would be interesting to know your perspective um, as someone who had been a chaplain in the prison system about um, what are some of the misconceptions you think that people have um, about people who are incarcerated that you have encountered that you feel like you want to clear up? Well, uh, the first thing I want to clear up is that the, the folks who are incarcerated are human beings. Mm. They, uh, the, the term I heard uh, by several staffers over the years I was there is that uh, we warehouse criminals. Um, I don't like that, but one of the misconceptions that I think a lot of folks who are followers of Jesus sometimes forget or ignore on purpose. And uh, one of the misconceptions is that we're supposed to care for prisoners. <laughs> it seems like I read somewhere in the Bible that when Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in and I needed clothes and you clothed me and I was sick and you helped me and I was in prison and you visited me. Yeah. Uh, and so he concludes that little uh, statement by saying, truly, I tell you, when you did it to one of these, the least of these, my true brothers and sisters, you did it to honor me. So, the misconception is that inmates have lost all of their constitutional rights. Uh, that's a misconception. Uh, the Constitution guarantees inmates, anybody incarcerated, the freedom to practice their religious faith in prison. Now, every state, every prison, has its own set of policies and practices. And sometimes the practices are not written in policy. <laughs> and so I would come across sometimes officers and they would say to me, prisoners have no rights. They shouldn't be out there doing whatever it is they're doing that they call religion because everybody comes into prison gets religious. And I said, not so, Sergeant. Yeah. This person has a constitutional right to express their faith while they are in prison. I am here to guarantee and advocate that they have that right to practice their faith. On any given week uh, or month when I would pull up a census of all the, of the folks that were inmates, I would have uh, it spread to about 26 different uh, religious faiths. Some of those I knew well, uh, some of those I did not and I had to learn. But one of the things that, is, uh, that came uh, over time to me was this. Building trust and respect are earned, not demanded. Mm. And I learned this by being friends to, being friendly to uh, not only inmates, but staff and officers and administration. And if I made it my point to know everybody by name, and to shake their hand in a handshake 
uh, except that those who didn't want to shake hands, some wanted to hug, and we couldn't do that very often, and not too many really wanted to do that. But I learned this too, that for an inmate, personal property and space are big issues. Mm. It doesn't matter what you have in your little 10 by 10, it's yours. And it is to be respected. Yeah. And it is private, unless it uh, violates prison rules, prison practice, prison policy. And uh, as long as you were a religious practicing inmate, you had certain religion uh, or religious items. Everyone could have a certain number by uh, state statutes. And uh, considering this, if you were a Christian, a Bible wasn't considered a religious item. Huh. It was considered a book okay. like any other yeah. book. And so you could have five books. One of those could be a Bible. And then you could have two other religious items okay. that allowed you to practice your faith. Uh, uh, so the other thing is that I learned that sometimes the worst criminal is not on the inside of the bars. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the worst criminal just hasn't been caught yet. Yeah. And so I learned very quickly uh I do not judge, and I did not judge any person who was uh, a sentence to whatever kind of sentence they received. Yeah. My thinking was this. I have not earned the right to judge anybody, and inmates have already been judged. True. They've had a trial by jury of peers, at least according to the way most courts are designed. And they were found guilty of a crime and they were sentenced by a judge. So I, I could not play that role. I did not want to be in that yeah. role. So I learned very quickly, I have no right to judge anyone. The other thing I learned was this, that inmates uh, want you to be real with them. Mm. Uh, an inmate can spot a phony a mile away. Uh, I was always amazed that when uh, I developed sort of a close uh, working relationship with some of these guys and they would see somebody come in and say, that person is a phony. That's <laughs> smart. You know, yeah, intuitive. Uh, you know, they, they're just here to do a job. You know, they don't care for us and all mm. that. But I, I, I found out that inmates are real people yeah. who, who got caught committing a crime and uh, I just said, well, some of the folks that work here just haven't been caught yet. <laughs> and, and, and that was that was yeah, true. No, yeah. Then uh, uh, some did get mm, caught. Yeah. <laughs> some got caught bringing in contraband and et cetera, et cetera. There were some inmates that were very sincere about their faith. Mm. Uh, I remember one of the Native Americans that would come into my, my office and he would sit there and play old, old hymns that I grew up Aww, with so nice. as a child. And he would, he would start playing. He said, you know what that is, chap? And I said, yes, I know what that is. I said, can you sing it? He said, I don't have a really good singing voice. I said, well, try. And he would sing to me. Aww. And one day he said, you don't know what my crime is, do you? I said, I don't look it up. I could, but I don't. 
he said, well, I'm going to tell you. And I have grieved and grieved for years over my crime. And I said, well, you don't have to tell me what your crime is. He said, well, I really think um, I have the kind of relationship with you I can. I said, well, okay, if you want to. I'm, I'm not telling you you have to. He said, well, here, here's been my, uh, my problem. I took, I killed two people. Hmm. They were both women. And I was high on mess. I don't remember doing any of that. Wow. They, they tell me I did it and I'm here and I'm serving two life sentences. Hmm. But I have cried a river of tears over these years because I think it's possible I could have sent those two young women to hell. And I cannot do anything about that now. Oh, what a burden. Oh, and he was crying when he told me this. And it had been years, years before this. Wow. And he said, I have prayed and I have cried. And I said, well, here's what we have to do at this point. We have to trust a loving, all-knowing, yeah. <laughs> wise, heavenly father. Yep. And we have to trust that if they ever heard about Jesus, that they made that decision to accept Jesus. What you did uh, probably would not have made a difference in their life now nor later. But we just have to trust that God in his love will and his grace that he will be the one who makes that decision. Not you, not me. And I just let him vent and let him share and try to just ease his heart a little bit. Uh, and he would bring people to me and say, this person needs to know Jesus, <laughs> chap. And I would say, well, why don't you tell him? <laughs> right, yeah. And, and he would. And, and I would help him. And they would, they would receive the Lord in my office. And I remember one man, uh, we were having a spiritual retreat. Uh, and there were times that I would go to certain inmates and say, who needs to go to this retreat? And they would know some guy that, or some person that really needed exposure to uh, what the volunteers would come and do for that 40-hour weekend. One of these guys, uh, I'm just going to call his name because you'll never see him. And he may be dead by now because he was a little older. His name was Vernon. Um, he was about six foot six, six foot seven. Uh, he had tattoos all over his arms I guess he had them all over his legs I never saw his legs but uh, this uh, Native American friend said I, I think you, he knew, talked to Vernon and let him go to that retreat and I said okay he said now if Vernon says he doesn't think he needs to you tell him I sent you <laughs> and he said I said why you and he said well I almost became he almost became my father-in-law oh <laughs> And so I go see Vernon, never met Vernon. He was in his cell and I knock on his cell door and he comes and he knows me uh, or knows of me. And I tell him what's going on and I'd like for him to go to the retreat. I just don't think I need to do that. I've been to all those things over the years. I've been to every prison in Texas and every prison in New Mexico. And I said, well, 
so-and-so sent me and told me that he thought you needed to go. He said, well, if he said it, I think I need to go. <laughs> he had a lot of influence, didn't he? <laughs> so, so he goes, and uh, I usually, uh, when I could, I would attend as many of those meetings that they had uh, as possible, even staying late at night and going back on Saturday and Sunday, which I really didn't have to go on those days, but I did. And on Saturday afternoon, I was out there, and, and I see, I had, in fact, this guy that told me, uh, Native American, I had him serving the tables. Uh, we had six servers for all the inmates that were coming to the retreat, and they would serve them meals during meal times. Okay. So he was there with Vernon, and he sees me. He said, come over here, chap, come over here. So I go over, and we're out in the middle of the gym, uh, center court, he said, I think Vernon is ready to receive Jesus. And I said, really? He said, yeah, I think so. He, he thinks he's ready for, to make that decision. And I said, okay, let's go over here to the little prayer uh, prayer room that we've set aside for everybody to pray. And go over there, and I take Vernon by the hand. And he's a big guy. I mean, probably weighed over 300 wow. pounds. A formal, former Hell's Angel from wow. Texas. And I'm holding his hand, and I'm sharing with him how to receive the Lord. And he, he he's just shaking all over. <laughs> he's holding my hand. He's just shaking all over. And uh, when uh, he prayed to receive the Lord, and, and I said, now, Vernon, uh, if you were to die this very moment, if something were to happen, somebody were to shank you on the way back to your cell, would you go to heaven? He said, yes, Pastor. He called me Pastor. He wouldn't call me Chaplain. <laughs> He said, yes, Pastor. He said, I've tried everything. I've tried every religion while I've been in prison. And I, my, I've got 300 more years to go in prison. And I said, well, Vernon, that's a long time. He said, I, you think I'll make it? I said, don't think so, Vernon. And so he, he receives the Lord uh, in that moment. And uh, after that retreat, every time I saw Vernon in the compound, he'd stick up his big old hand and wave and say, hi, Pastor. How are you doing today? Aw. So nice. I love that story so much because I think it, what it shows us is, um, you know, people, I think in our society and maybe a lot of societies, when we picture in our minds, a criminal who's in, incarcerated, especially a guy who's 300 pounds and, you know, six foot seven, um, you know, we're intimidated by that. And we see them as strong as maybe cold hearted. And, um, and yet you got to see this really vulnerable side and, and actually see, you know, the spiritual side, which there's really no more intimate conversation that you can have with someone than, it, you know, one about their own spirituality and their beliefs and, and faith. And so I just think it's, it's so, it's such a good reminder, just like you said, that one of your biggest lessons of your time being chaplain in the prison was that inmates are just human beings. They're, we kind of, um, we want to like, kind of close them off from society and forget about them. So we don't have to humanize them, but you got to really see, the very human part of them. And I think that you sharing your own humanity with them too, it sounds like that really helped them, you know, to connect with you. And it really is such an, a, a wonderful example for all of us of what it really means to help people in hard times. There's probably no harder time than being incarcerated, serving two life sentences and the remorse of, you know, of murder and, and the, the guilt that you, yeah. that people feel. So I just thank you for sharing those stories. Well, um, we as we wrap it up on our series, I'm asking people two different questions, and one of them is, 
Um, what do you like to do on your day off? Because I know that you're, as you mentioned, as a child, you learned how to work hard. <laughs> and uh, so certainly you're even, you know, not you're retired, but not retired. So you're still actually working hard. But what do you do to find rest and to just kind of decompress on your day, your time off? Well, this weekend I did absolutely nothing. Um, and I choose to do that sometimes, just veg and do R&R, rest, relax. Um, most, most days during the week, I have been getting up because of the stress and the extra pounds of keto, of COVID. <laughs> uh, I, early on, I, I, I was watching and uh, began to hear Pastor Andy and others <laughs> uh, talk about this, that uh, if we're not careful, we start eating comfort food. And I don't have a food addiction, but I, there are some comfort foods that I gravitate yeah, we to. All do. So I put on, I put on a, an extra 10 pounds within the first month or so. Well, I'd already lost all that, I thought. And so um, I got started walking a couple months ago, just little by little. And, and today, uh, I'll get close to four miles for my walk today. I'll do that Monday through, uh, through Friday, so three and a half to four miles every day during the week. So I don't walk on the okay. weekends. Uh, usually, uh, Frida and I will, uh, after we do some housework, which is very light here for our little house, uh, we team up, we do those things together. Uh, then we'll probably sit down and, and watch something on TV. That's a series that we've been watching. We'll keep watching that. And, um, I, I did, I've learned to do that. Back overseas, I love to go to the beach and just snorkel all yeah, day. Yeah, you're good, but I can't too, do yeah. that here. Uh, is it we'll just get in the car and drive through the the farms here in the valley or the pecan orchards that we have the biggest pecan uh, production going on in the United States. We're the pecan capital of the world, or we'll go the other way and go to the chili farms, and that's the biggest chili farm in the world. Yeah. <laughs> So we're right in the middle of all that. So we'll get out and just drive around. Uh, there are times we'll do a day trip up to the mountains and things like that. Uh, that's sort of what we do on our day off. And on Sunday, even though that's day off, we watch our own church uh, online. And your church immediately comes on right after that. So we get two worship services on Sunday. And we feel like our spiritual tank got filled up uh, on Sunday. Well, that's good. I mean, it's just good to have a rhythm of rest. And I know it's different for everybody. So I'm glad to know that you're still able to do that because people who help in hard times tend to overwork. <laughs> and uh, so, right. yeah, we all need to refuel. And uh, yeah, I know that yeah, currently um, you've been working as a hospice chaplain. And I know that um, it's a very special calling that you have of helping people pass from this life to the next. And all that, but I know that you also have a lot of resources just from your experience of all the different, you know, jobs you've done and, and roles you've played in ministry and helping others. But are there any sort of books or movies or, um, you know, particular people and authors, songs maybe that you feel like would be good resources for those of us listening that want to help make a difference for people? Well, uh, I, I would think, um, my best resource is the Bible, yep. of course. Uh, I get I get most of what I've learned over these 
50 years in ministry and uh, 60 years going on uh, trying to be a follower of Jesus. That's, that is what um, is my main resource. I read not only uh, the Bible, but uh, devotional materials each week. Um, since I've worked with Celebrate Recovery and worked in counseling for going on close to 20 years now as well, uh, I've learned that there, uh, the Hazleton uh, Corporation out of Michigan, which is a, uh, it mainly deals with AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, Narcotics Anonymous as well. Many of their articles are centered in on those particular struggles that people have, but I get a lot of good and uh, information from Hazelden. Uh, Chris, your older Christopher, uh, Dr. Adams, the other Dr. Adams, um, he uh, referred me to a Franciscan priest up in Albuquerque some years ago, and I started reading books by, by him. And uh, he, his, um, his meditation contemplation, um, Richard Rohr is his name. He's written, I'm guessing, close to 25, maybe 30 books yeah. now. Uh, he also comes out of a 12-step background. And so a lot of his books have that in it. But uh, in his philosophy as a writer, uh, he gleans from Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, uh, the mystics, he, he gleans from all of those in some of his writings and in some of his articles. And I like the way he thinks. Um, I don't always agree with everything he says, but, and I don't always agree with anybody yeah, else I read. I never agree 100% <laughs> with they any say. author. So that's, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's good. Uh, they're the author, you know, we're the reader. But I think the book that are set of books and writings that actually impacted me more than any other were Martin Luther King's writings. But one of the highest honors of all the positions and all the titles and all of the work that I've done in 52 years, the highest one that I can tell you from my heart is in Martin Luther King's celebration day. They honored me. Uh, by allowing me and asking me to do the invocation. As I began to uh, pray, I had a little uh, vignette that I wanted to share, and I shared with that congregation of people what a blessing Martin Luther King had been to my life and quoted some of the things that I still have in memory. And then I got to pray on Martin Luther King Day uh, on that celebration. Uh, the TV crew from one of the news channels was there. Yeah, I was the only white male in that building. And I felt honored yeah. to be there among people of like faith uh, that I could share with and that I could have a little part in that celebration. Yeah, well, I know we have so much to learn from your generation that, um, you know, was alive to see Dr. King and, um, and I, and just having that perspective. I mean, a lot of us feel like, Oh, we would have supported Dr. King and who knows, you know, I mean, they, he did kill, he was killed for his beliefs and what he stood for. And I think today we, 
we have a lot of hard questions to ask ourselves in this generation, but um, I do think anytime we have an opportunity to be, be the only white person in the room and to listen and to, you know, pray with, to, um, to stand with, to be a part of um, a movement with, I think it's, it is such a high honor. And, um, and I know that you've definitely set that example for me, you and mom both, and just allowing, you know, me to be raised um, as a minority most of my life is just a true blessing because it allowed me to see through the eyes of so many different kinds of people. And, um, and I know that for you being raised as a white male at the top of the social hierarchy in America, and then um, to spend your life somewhere else has really enriched you and given you a new lens on life and allows you to see through the eyes of, um, you know, Spanish speakers by learning another language and, and then living in Thailand to see through the eyes of other people. And, and I just think it enriches us so much when we allow ourselves to be immersed in other cultures and, and to be a minority. It, it really is. It's a, it's an awesome privilege. Well, your life is an inspiration to all of us. And I'm so grateful that you came on the show today to share with us. And anyway, thanks dad. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for letting me have the opportunity, Laurie. It's, it, it's an honor to be honored among all those that you are conducting interviews. Well, so far, it's just you, Mom, and Chris. So <laughs> but hopefully there'll be more. <laughs> okay. Love you, Dad. <laughs> Love you, too. Bye. Wow. Didn't you just get the feeling there's just so much more? And there, are, there is so much more. Um, when you've lived as many years as my father has and you've done as many things as he's done, there's just, there's, there's so many life lessons. There's so much wisdom. There's so many stories to tell. He, I mean, we could have done a whole podcast just on, you know, leadership lessons he's learned or, or people he's mentored or, or people, you know, he looks up to and, yeah, there's just, there's a lot there. And I just, um, it's just a reminder that we have, you know, people around us in our lives, people in our families that, um, life is just short and, and getting a chance to listen to the wisdom of our elders who've gone before us, who've led in different generations, who have perspectives, um, you know, for Americans to know people who lived during the time of the Vietnam War and what that was like, you know, for their generation to go through the draft. And we, we can't even fathom that today. But the things that we go through in our generation really form us. I think of my kids now going through COVID, sheltering in place, online school, you know, what will their kids and grandkids be asking them to tell stories about? What kind of life lessons, leadership lessons, character development is going on in them? So I just encourage you to reach out to somebody that you know that's um, older than you. It could be somebody in their 70s. It could be somebody in their 50s or 30s, depending on how old you are. But there are people with a couple more decades or even a decade or even five years more life experience than us that have so much to teach us. And particularly those in your life that you see really living their life in such a way as to make a difference. What have they learned? What 
um, lessons are just timeless lessons that we can learn from them. I am certainly blessed to have a father like mine who invested in me, who mentored me, who taught me about leadership, who taught me about helping others, who taught me that even when you're having hard times, you can still reach out to others who are having hard times. So right now in California, we're having COVID like everyone else, and we're also experiencing fires on both sides of us. Our house is currently safe. Um, but we have friends who've had to evacuate, friends who've had houses that burned down um, west of us in Santa Cruz Mountains. And then on the east of us, um, on the outer edges of San Jose, there's people evacuating and Morgan Hill in those areas. And, you know, we're trying to figure out how we can respond with eco compassion right now to reach out to evacuees and, and firefighters. You don't have to be in a perfect scenario to reach out and help. And I hope that's what you're getting from this series. That's what I've gotten as I've heard all these speakers. Um, I hope that these are spurring on conversations with you, your family, your friends, your loved ones that you're on Zoom with, maybe not in person. Reach out to someone and talk about some of the things that you're thinking through and that you're hearing. And if you have a prompting to reach out to someone to offer help, I would just say go for it. You don't have to have everything figured out. Um, but sometimes it's just a matter of being the, in the right place at the right time and just um, and thinking outside yourself. And I just encourage you to follow that. Next episode is going to be a standalone episode between this series, which is um, now ending, and our next series. And the standalone episode, episode is just going to be in honor of the 19th Amendment um, centennial here in the United States of America. So I have uh, a little snippet from my mom talking about what it was like in her family to um to know women older than her that were getting to vote and what that was like in her family i'm gonna have my daughter on who's definitely not voting age she's 12 but what it means to her that women 100 years ago worked for that and um and so it's just a special episode i realize there's a lot of um you know negative stuff around this topic because the women who were uh, fighting for the right to vote didn't really take up the whole case for everyone so they really were just looking out for just white women which is is really shameful um that they didn't take it up with african-american women and native women and asian-american women that it's a shame that it didn't get to be all of them together and there was a lot of you know racism involved in that but um as we know history is complicated people are complicated and so we're going to focus on the good part of it which is that It did legalize voting for women, even though it took many years for African-American women to to really get that right. Um, But we're going to just focus on what that meant, how we've had people that went before us that um, went through really hard times to help us out and just to, you know, have a little gratitude for that. So tune in for our bonus episode on um, women who are empowered from the, the right to vote and what that's also done to help women just have a voice in all kinds of ways and um, being able to, you know, make changes and and help others. And following that um, episode, you will um, really want to tune in because we're doing a series on immigration. And I've got some really great people that are going to be on talking about various parts of immigration, what it really means in the United States of America and other countries, and some immigrant friends that I have. It's going to be really exciting. So tune in for our immigration series. And in the meantime, stay safe. Take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Bye.